Um, first, we'll just pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can gather here together today, individually, that brought us here this morning, that, yeah, we can come together as a family. I just pray for Andrew as he gives his message, Lord. I pray that even though it's him up here and his voice, that it's you speaking, that you are working in him to use him to share with us what you want us to know. I just pray that this reading, whether this bit of text you've heard once or 100 times, that it is new and fresh and that all of us leave here with a new energy and a new perspective or understanding of your word. pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the readings from 1 Peter, chapter 2, 4 to 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honour is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Thanks, Peyton, for that. Good morning, everybody. For those of you that don't know me, my name's Andrew, and um, it's my privilege to, to pastor here and um, to see my kids off, apparently. So um, back in 2005, um, we were living overseas, and we were considering a call to come back and work here in um, Australia, and and one of the motivating factors, Sue said to me, she said, look, our kids are getting to be teenagers and they're going to find partners here in, in, in Holland. And so, you know, uh, I think it's time we move now because I, I, you know, I don't want to ever move away from my kids. It's okay if my kids move away from me. Um, I'm not sure it is that okay, actually. <laughs> you know, I'm not... Um, but, you know, we, we are thankful. We're thankful for our kids. We've... Since we came back, uh, since we came back to Australia in 2006, both of our kids and their partners have uh, been instrumental in the churches we've been part of, and influential. And um, we, yeah, we can't be any more thankful to God than we are for that. And so, in a sense, it's difficult when your kids leave and and they go and um, go to other parts of the world, well, the country in this case. Um, but there's a sense of that we can surrender them. Um, to what God has and has already done, um, I think, through them. It doesn't make it easy, but it does um, help us to understand what's going on. However, there was nothing about grandkids in that. <laughs> Taking grandkids is kind of not fair. <laughs> so, um, but then again, as grandparents, it's good to be able to give them back occasionally too, so you don't want them to leave them here, do you? You know, that would be a bit awkward. 
All right, let's have a look at what we're talking about today. Uh, we're in Peter's, uh, we're in, uh, in the, the letter, Peter's first letter to the churches. Let me start with this. In a recent book I read, the author describes his ideal church. And it goes like this. It would be located in a major city in an environmentally friend, uh, sorry, in a design. It would include a coffee shop, a roastery, an event space for the community. The church would be active in justice, mercy and outreach. It would hold the best of conservative theological tradition while learning from the best of other traditions as well. It would be gospel-centred, spirit-led, mission-minded, membership seriously, and it would engage its members in active service. It would also offer engaging courses on a variety of topics to the community. It would also own several homes and apartments in the community and rent them out as a way of building intentional community. Does that sound good to you? Sounds good to me. The perfect church is in our minds. What it would look like and how it would suit our preferences or our ideals or our our values, perhaps. However, the author goes on to say, just after this, he said, I'm actually a bit disgusted with how easy it is to describe in such detail my hypothetical dream church. It's easy because this is how we've been conditioned to think. You can have it your way. Individualism and consumerism is the air we breathe, unquote. But here's the truth. What we think we want from church is almost never what we really need. However challenging it might be to embrace, God's idea of church is far more glorious. You see, it's not about finding a church that perfectly fits my theological or social or political preferences It's about becoming living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house, we saw in our reading today, with a purpose. Focused on and held together by Jesus, the stone the builders rejected who became the cornerstone. And we're going to have a look at that this morning. We're in this short series on uh, 1 Peter, as I said. Um, We've called it, You Are God's People, because Peter's, and that was in our reading today, Peter says that in 1 Peter 2. He's writing to followers of Jesus um, who are scattered around five provinces in Asia Minor, current day Turkey. And it's not easy in these Roman enclaves or in these Roman provinces to be God's people, to be the church. It's a real challenge. They're trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus in a culture that's hostile to Christian faith. These Roman provinces governed by Roman ideals had had been captured and the whole Roman culture and Roman ethos and thinking was overlaid and forced into those ideas. So there was no room for this new movement of Jesus' followers. So it became hostile to the Christian faith. And there's a little bit of familiarity when we think about that for ourselves. We're not in a world that's openly friendly to Christian ideals and the Christian faith nowadays. And themselves. And Peter knows this and he's reminding them firstly, and we a couple of weeks ago we talked about that, he's reminding them firstly that they are God's people. That's not just a term of endearment. That's not just to make them feel good. There's a lot that goes with that, and he, he spells it out in the first chapter, doesn't he? First and foremost, it means that they have a living hope for an inheritance. You hear a few weeks ago, 
We talked a little bit about that. But Peter goes on to say, and that was costly. That didn't come cheap. It wasn't something that you know that you could just pick off the shelf. It cost Jesus' blood, but it's yours, and it's yours forever. God loved them enough to pay the price, enough to keep that prize safe, and furthermore, to keep them safe in the using this letter to urge them, to help them understand how to get busy under fire. You know, when you're under attack, when you're under pressure, how do we get busy? How can I encourage you to get busy under fire? And he begins by talking about holiness, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, about being like Jesus, about becoming more like Jesus, and doing that first within the body, and and he talks about loving each other, because look around you, and I mean, you can do that this morning, look around you, Each person you see was worthy of that great price. There's no one around you that was not worthy of that great price. There's no one around you that wasn't loved by God, that isn't loved by God. So he says, as individuals, love each other, live holy lives, becoming like Jesus. And I think that in the last couple of weeks when we've talked about those things that that we've seen that and we've understood that message for us as one hope, for us as God's people here in Scoresby. That we too are people that have this living hope, this inheritance that will never perish. That, and that we too are being kept by God. And we're also challenged to holiness, to becoming more like Jesus, to shaping our lives and our decision making, to look more like Jesus. And when that happens, that what comes out is that we love each other in the body, that we begin to serve each other in the body. We're now seeing a little bit of a shift so we see a little bit of a change in Peter's letter. He makes a, a little bit of a, a slight move, if you like, from addressing the individual. You know, he's kind of in the first part, he's addressing the individual. It's becoming a little more corporate in its language or a little bit more corporate picture. It's together language that he's using now. You know, there were individual stones, but they're being built into a house. Um, And these are the together things into a a house or a nation or a people. And so it's becoming corporate and more than one. You're not just individuals that have come to God. But as you do come to him, he's building you together into a spiritual house, a temple. Let's have a look at verse 4 and 5 where he says that. And he says, as you come to him... A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. What he's saying is, as you come to him, as you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, as you've come and and remember, and you might remember I've said that many, if not most of those that he's speaking to, who are scattered, are Gentiles. And he's reminding them, as you came to him, as you left your former way of life and you come to him, when you come together, you come as an individual, but you're coming together, you are being built into a spiritual house. So it's about um, this sense like you've come as an individual, you've had this experience, you've accepted Jesus as your saviour, you've seen salvation, but now when you come together, get ready to be built together. As a spiritual house. Now, um, there's another scripture, and we'll have a look at that as well. I think in Ephesians, I've got it up there. And Ephesians chapter 2 has really similar language. And this is Paul speaking, 
So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens. Now remember, Paul's talking to the Ephesians, and the Ephesians, where's Ephesus? It's also in Turkey. And the letter that Paul's letter was written, Ephesians was written, perhaps, they suspect, only a couple of years apart from Peter. And there's a real sense that Paul and Peter were in Rome at the same time. And a lot of commentators would say the first letter of Peter actually sounds more Pauline in its language than the second letter. So that you, you can imagine there might have been some conversation or might have been, they might have heard from each other through each other's followers. And so you see this, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. There's some similar stuff happening there. There's a sense where Peter is speaking to the Gentiles or to the, to the listeners to the letter, to the five different churches, and perhaps Paul did the same in saying, hey guys, you understood what Jesus did for you. You've understood that Christ has called you into a relationship with him, that he's given his life for you, and that you now have that inheritance. But wait a minute, he's building you into something. It isn't just about you. And then Peter talks about those spiritual sacrifices. What are spiritual sacrifices? I was wondering, you know, what did he mean by spiritual sacrifices? Well, the language to them would have been specific. They understood that when the temple, when people came together, there were sacrifices. And they were not human sacrifices, they were animal sacrifices back then. And those animal sacrifices were what happened in the temple. And Peter's saying, you're now going to come with spiritual sacrifices. And in a sense, what he's saying is, you're coming and offering yourself now as a spiritual sacrifice. Think back to Romans where Paul said in Romans, you know, to offer yourselves as a spiritual sacrifice to God. So there's this sense we're saying, you're individuals, but now you're coming together as a body. And this picture, the temple, is full of meaning for them, the listeners. Here's what they knew. When Adam and Eve sinned, God kicked them out of the Garden of Eden. And there was no way that sinful humans could live in God's presence. God is so holy, he couldn't live in the presence of sin. We know that from the Old Testament. But what, the, uh, the, what God's people discovered was that God still chose to live with them. And he first did that in a tabernacle. You remember the tent they would set up with the ark would be set in the tabernacle. And then in a more permanent structure, the temple, they had the holy temple. And the temple is where God lives with imperfect people. That was the whole reason for the sacrifice. It was only made possible by sacrifices which somehow dealt with the problem of sin. And a temple was where God lived with his people. It's where God showed his glory. It's where God's people worship. It's where he deals with their sin. As Peter writes this, and you know, it's, it's hard for us to understand what it might have meant for them. But as Peter's writing this, the temple is still standing in Jerusalem. It's probably in its last years. It's, got a, it's completely destroyed in about 70 AD, and this was in about 65. So, but it's still there. They still know. The, temple, the picture of the temple is really vivid for them. But they've received the gospel. 
And something's happened. The temple is no longer where God lives with his people anymore. It's changed. Peter speaks of the church, God's people, the ordinary followers of Jesus who are bound together in Christ. That's the new place where God lives with his people. Jesus spoke about that when he talked about the Holy Spirit indwelling us. They now are the temple. And it's going to be a good building, not because they've got it all together, but because it's being built with Jesus as a cornerstone. And why is this cornerstone? It made me think of Uganda. Now you might think, why would that make you think of Uganda? How many of you have been to Uganda when you, and you've built a house with us in Uganda? All right, we've got to fix that. We need, you know. But in Uganda, we build, these, we build our houses with these big mud bricks. But we have what you call the corner brick. And the Africans call it the corner brick. And it's a corner brick, but it doesn't only do corners. And it is like if a brick is this long and this wide, the corner brick is this long. And the corner brick is what must go down first. That's the one that we set the line off for the level of the wall. But what it also does is it locks in that wall with this wall. And what it also does, they use it for internal walls. They use a corner brick to start an internal wall because it locks the internal wall with the external walls. Without the corner bricks, the whole place... Now, we discovered this because in 2009, we had some rogue builders. They were not us. We had some rogue builders that built an internal wall in house number two and didn't put any corner bricks in because they couldn't be bothered. They ran out and they didn't. And so that whole internal wall, you could just push it. And if you gave it a push, it would, would fall over. Without the corner bricks, without the corner bricks on the corners, A, the level's not right, the integrity of the house doesn't work, and the walls just rock all over the place. You can have fantastic other bricks. Without the corner bricks, it isn't going to work. What a fantastic picture that really made me understand it. Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the integrity and the true level of the church that Peter's talking about and this church. It keeps it bound together. It keeps it solid and stable. Even though all the stones are a little bit different, and in this church that's true as well, and, and I'm sure it was there, different ideas and maybe a bit of a different shape. And if you go to Africa, there is no one brick that's the same as the other brick. You know, because somehow the mould got a bit shorter. Who knew? Somehow the, the, you know, the sloped down like that. And so that's okay. They just put more mortar in there, you know. But every brick was different, but held together by the cornerstone. And that's the picture that Peter is painting here for them. With Christ as the cornerstone, you're being built together. And that's what gives you integrity. That's what gives you true level and true north. Well, what does this mean for us as God's people, as One Hope Community Church? Well, God is building this church using us, us bricks. Are stones, if you like. With Jesus as our cornerstone, the structural integrity of our building, the one who binds us together and keeps us from falling over, is Jesus. This church is where God shows his glory and where God's mediating agents in the world because of that. God has taken many different stones, right even in this church here. Some are slopey. Some are shorter, some are taller, some are wider. 
And with Jesus as our cornerstone, we fit. It works. Who knew? We're all different, but all needed. The building stands and is effective because Christ is the cornerstone. We share Christ in common. He's the thing that locks us together. And we can be different. It's okay to be different. But he's building us into a spiritual house. This is a big deal. As our lives interlock together as a group of believers, God inhabits us. He lives amongst us. And what's more, he chooses to live amongst us. How good is that? We can't expect this if we're isolated and alone. God inhabits us collectively. His glory and his presence show up as we're being built together. As we manifest to each other, as we serve each other, and and then we manifest to the community who Christ is and then to the world. We together are at the very heart and centre of God's activity of the world. And Peter's trying to help them to understand that and trying to help us to understand the same thing. And we can see in our text that this is no accident. It's not kind of, well, you're together now, so, you know, here we go. It's not a coincidence. Verse 9a says, um, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. It says that they were chosen, that, that it was intentional. And, and when I think of us as a church, I sort of think, you know, did you just come here because you lived close or your mates come here? Or, um, which are all not bad reasons. But what we need to know above that is that we are a chosen people, that we're a royal priesthood. They needed to know that. They were chosen, they'd accepted Christ. And unlike those who'd rejected Christ... As the head. And he talks about that in there. He says, you know, behold, I'm laying uh, in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling. Rejected Jesus, who rejected the message. They trip over it. Jesus becomes an annoying, uh, annoying thing. And I often think of some of these modern-day conversations you, we might have, or, and I've had them too, where um, it's almost people stumble over or are offended at Jesus or offended at his ways or offended at the truth and the values of Christ. They want to live their lives. You know, placing the standard of Christianity or standard of Christ on the world nowadays is an offence. The cornerstone has become an offence. That's what Peter's talking about. But Peter says, no, they're chosen. They're part of the family. They're set apart. And in verse 10, he reminds them that this wasn't always the case. He says, now you are God's people. Remember, these are Gentiles mostly. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's reminding them of that divine rescue, of what he talked about in the first chapter, that, that living hope. And we will see in Peter that he keeps on challenging them, and we're going to talk about submission to authorities and all that sort of... But he'll keep reminding them, but that divine rescue. But you were saved. You were, you know, once you weren't a people, but you are now. Imagine that. He'll keep doing that. The work of Jesus, God's act of mercy, has given them belonging. Made them a part of God's family. 
Not just as individuals, but now the charge is... This is just as true for us, isn't it? Once we weren't God's people, each one of us has taken, a, taken that, that time to accept Jesus as Lord and Saviour. But because of God's mercy now we are, we're recipients of that same divine rescue. We've been chosen. We've been set apart. We belong to God's family with Christ as our head. Our identity has changed. You know, when we come together as a church, I start thinking about, are we just a bunch of individuals with our own goal to be there at church? But our identity changes when we get to come together as God's people, from individuals to being built together. And as we're built together, we become God's church, God's chosen people for his possession. Notice that, his possession, his purposes. When you own something, you can do with it what you like. Isn't that right? So if Christ owns us, well, it follows, doesn't it? We're his possession for his purposes. When, when we come together in Christ... But, and this is important, Peter isn't writing to, the, writing to them to give them warm fuzzies. Do you see the that you may? In verse 9, the second half of verse 9, you'll see you're a people of his excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You're being built together, you've, you've received Christ, you've, you've been built together. That you may for something to declare the excellencies of Christ. Well, what are those excellencies? Well, declare that to each other, but then to the world. Who he is, who God is. You're, you come together to glorify him and to describe to each other who he is. And then to the world. How much he loves us. We, we want to reflect that to each other by loving each other, but also telling each other how much God loves us. And to the world. How great, I could go on, how great and glorious together so that you will declare the excellencies and other, other versions say it differently. So that you will tell each other, so that you will tell the world who God is. It's Pentecost today. And you might have thought I missed it totally. This Peter is the same Peter who stood up at Pentecost. Exact same one. Filled with the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what he did. He declared what Christ had done to the people listening. And he finishes, if you read Acts chapters, he finishes, the promises for all. He declares what Christ has done, what Jesus did. You sacrificed him and this is what he done. But you can come to repent and believe and receive the Holy Spirit themselves. And this is why the Holy Spirit filled him. This is why he was filled with the Holy Spirit and that's why we are filled with the Holy Spirit. The message of Pentecost isn't just that the Holy Spirit came and filled us for our own well-being. That's part of it. It's not just so that we can marvel at or focus, at, or focus on the miracles, the flames and the, the languages and, and, and other miracles that he did then and I believe he still does now by the way. No, I believe Pentecost, the Holy Spirit poured out on all believers, including you and I, was to empower us 
with supernatural strengths that we may declare the excellencies of him who has brought us out of darkness into the light. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. If you like, it was to empower the launch of the good news of Jesus into the world. The world as they knew it then and for us now. Going as communities, establishing new communities and growing new communities everywhere. God's people, the church, everywhere. And if we read on, we can see, if we read on from Acts chapter 2, from Pentecost, we can see that God did that. By the Holy Spirit's power, he started building his church. His people, once you weren't, now you are. They were filled with that same Holy Spirit to go on and declare those same excellencies. And Peter's now, that same Peter now, is writing this. And he's telling the exiles exactly the same thing. He said, that's why you are a community. That's why you are God's people. That's why you are the church. That's why you need to be the church, because this cannot be achieved alone. You know, I don't really need to say it, but this message is for us today as well, isn't it? We're being built as a community. We're God's chosen Now we are his people, we're set apart, we belong to him, that we may declare his excellencies. We're filled with that same spirit, that same power. And I love this, one of my favourite scriptures is is in Ephesians chapter 1. So um, when you talk about the power of the Holy Spirit, this is how Paul wanted uh, the Gentiles or the church in Ephesus to understand it. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. That power is the same as the mighty strength that he, God, exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. That's a lot of power. When the Holy Spirit came, that's the power we have. And that power is to declare the excellencies of Christ into the world, to give us the courage we need, to give us the, the, the strength we need, to give us the guts we need to go and do that, to give us the the sense to to figure out what we understand, to give us the courage to love one another and to love the world and to do that. We need the power of the Holy Spirit for that. And that's why the Spirit was poured out upon us, so that we would go and do that. As God's people, we're all different, with Jesus holding us together as our cornerstone, our head. We are a church filled by the Holy Spirit so we can declare His excellencies. And it begins in here. To each other, and then it goes out to Cavell, and it goes out to your neighbours, and it goes out to the community you live in, or the school that you're at, or the workplace you're at, and it goes all the way to Uganda, to Rwanda, to wherever we find ourselves. That's how the Holy Spirit works. That's how the Holy Spirit builds us as a community. And this is something none of us could achieve by ourselves. This is why, as followers of Jesus, we need to be built into. We need to be part of a church. You can't do it alone. Isolation doesn't work. You can't, you know, you've heard people say, look, you know, I believe in Jesus, but I don't need to be part of a church. That doesn't work if we understand Peter, does it? You've got to be built together. It doesn't work on our own. We need to be a community together. I need you. You need me. We need to be built as one hope for this. And we need each different stone. We need the people that laugh out loud. We need the people that 
Don't say much sometimes. We need the people that when worship happens, they can't keep their feet still. We need the people that when worship happens, they just sit in ponder. We need the people that are musically gifted. We need the people that shouldn't sing too loud because it puts us all off. We need the they've already got distracted 16 times. We need the people that can serve and put the chairs out. We need the people that can serve by helping those in our community. We need the people that, that think this way and we need the people that think that way. We need every different stone because we're held together by Christ. We're all submitted to the head, the standard. It can get messy. It can be hard work. And it's not always to our liking or our preference or comfort. But if it's for the kingdom, if it's for the king, then as for me, let me be built here. And that perfect church, the easiest thing to do these one, or however you term it, with internet, social media, and all the info, it's all out there. And you can find out about every church, and some of it's great, and unfortunately there's a lot of not-so-great stuff as well. But the question we should be asking, first of our own churches we're being built together, but then of others is, who is it built on? Who sets the standard or the level of that church? Who is it about? How is God glorified? How are his excellencies expressed? How can I contribute with my unique gifts? That's that spiritual sacrifice, isn't it? How can I give myself? If today's text taught us anything, it's that it's not about me, the church, is it? Being God's people isn't about me. It's being about, about being built together. It's about declaring him. It's not about meeting our needs first. And that's controversial today. Because we shop for churches. We even go to churches wondering, is this going to suit me? Just like we'll go to this club or this shop or this house or buy this car or whatever. It's become a commercial transaction. And it's controversial now to say, church is not about you. You don't go to church and figure out, do I like this? Does this suit me? At least not first. What matters is that the cornerstone, the standard is Jesus. And the purpose is the growth of the kingdom. The constant is the gospel in the church. And that people of all generations and all demographics and all social settings will get to hear of his excellencies. Will experience them right here. We don't do that all the time, do we? But that's what we're called to do. Each of us is imperfect. But we're being built. Did you notice that the word is being built? Oh, there's some relief in that, isn't it? Because that means it's dynamic. It means it's still happening, that God is still doing it with me and still doing it with you and still doing it with us. We're being built. So we're learning. We're getting to learn along the way. We're getting to surrender to Christ and become the church that he's called us to be. There is no perfect church. Remember, different stones. But when we understand that we're being, not done yet, we're being built, and that gives us grace, and we look for ways to contribute to the building where God has us, we look first at what God has done in our lives, just like Peter's reminded them in chapter 1. And then with gratitude, allow him to build us with all the people around us, with others to glorify him. It might not always be easy. 
Imagine the exiles that he was talking to in those churches. There's five churches, so I have this little picture that they can't be that far apart. And when it was tough, you can imagine, oh, geez, why don't we quit this church and join them over there? They seem like they're having a whole lot better time than we are. I've heard their music is really good there. You know, or oh, this, these people are annoying me in this church, but I've heard those people have got lots of kids and nice friendly families, so I think we'll go over there. And there's good food over in church number three. Let's go over there. That suits me better. They were humans too, right? But Peter's saying, no, where you are, serve now. Peter says, you're here now to offer spiritual sacrifices. Serve now, declare his excellencies here, even in the struggle. And we'll see more of that as we go. One hope, there's something that we have together that we can't achieve alone. This church... This context. This context gives you a part in spiritual sacrifice. It gives you a part in that you may. No one gets to cruise. It gives you a place to be a stone, to being built in. In a way that you're uniquely gifted. Because we each are uniquely called. We've been empowered here by the Holy Spirit. I'm speaking to us as one hope. We've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to declare who he is and what he's done and what he's doing to those sitting next to us first, and that's important. Let's not discount that. Let's not just think that declaring his excellencies is just evangelism and getting out there. It is that, but it begins in here. Remember Peter said, begin by loving each other in here, and then you can do it out there. If you can't declare his excellencies to each other in here, how will you ever do it out there? So it begins here where we, where we do that together to those sitting next to us, then in our community in the world. And there is a lot that God is doing here at One Hope. Did you hear Philippa's announcement of the first fruits offering? That's amazing. You know, when we think of Cavell and we think that we want to use that to, to build the community, that's going to declare his excellencies. We're doing that because Christ called us to speak of him to the community with our hands and feet. You know, welcomed One Hope lunch a few weeks ago. We had 16 or 18 people. Our, our you know, part, partnership coming up soon. We've got people coming. And God is growing us as a community, building us into a house. With our youth and our young Did you see how many young adults were up here? The church nearly empty. It's like when the kids, you know, the, remember the times when there was stacks of kids and the kids went out to think, and we thought, well, who's left? You know, God is doing amazing building here at One Hope. And it's exciting plans that God has led us to with Cavell. And there's so much more I could go on. This is all, not to make us feel good, this is all, as Peter said, that you may proclaim the excellence, excellent, I'm going to have trouble with that word forever, aren't I? Excellencies of him. How cool is it? Youth, young adults, first fruits, partnership, kids, Cavell, all that's great, but it's given to us in our built-together community so that we can declare who Christ is to the world. That's what it's for. How cool is that? I am proud to be being built with God's people here. It isn't always easy, but it's where God has me, with you and you with me. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord God, we 
Thank you for your word, as we do always, that it, um, it enlightens us, it um, reveals more of you to us, it helps us understand uh, and, and stand still and, and recognize just how great you are, God, how much you've done for us, how you love us, um, how you've always loved us and will always love us, but how you challenge us and, and call us to be that we remember that you poured out your spirit so that we would have the power to do that. That we have living in us that same power that you used, God, to raise Jesus from the dead. And that same power is to empower us to be people that declare who you are to the world. That grow your witness and grow your kingdom and justice and salvation and hope to a world that's missing that. Holy Spirit, we invite you to, to continue to do your work in us and fill us. God, we, we, we ask you to continue to build us as a spiritual house here in Scoresby. To help us understand where each stone fits to, to hang on to you, Jesus, the cornerstone. That we're owned by you, that we're your possession. Called by you to give glory to you in the world around us. Lord, thank you for that privilege, Lord. Help us to understand what that looks like practically. It's all very well to talk about it in a sermon, but help us to understand what that looks like tomorrow morning in our next life group meeting, in our next youth group or young adults meeting, in our next caval, our breakfast club at the school or whatever we are. Help us to understand how to give that hands and feet. Build us, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen. We're going to go out singing.